we have nonverbal imitation and we have verbal imitation. Some people might even break up um, nonverbal imitation into fine motor and gross motor imitation. And then there's imitation with objects. For children with developmental speech and language disorder and for autistic children, imitation is something you should be working on if the child isn't yet speaking. SLPs, I'm Michelle, and this is the Pep Talk Podcast for Continuing Education. This podcast provides furthering knowledge on topics related to speech-language pathology. I interview experts in our field to bring you the most up-to-date information so you can go out into your workplace and feel more confident and learn new skills. You can use this episode for a professional development hour to maintain your ASHA CCCs. This course is also certified by the Texas Speech and Hearing Association, also known as TISHA. You must complete the course quiz with a passing score to earn your certificate of completion. You can find more information, other courses, and helpful tools on my website, peptalkpodcastforslps.com. Connect with me on Instagram, Facebook, or email me at michelle at peptalkpodcastforslps.com. I love hearing from you guys. Please don't hesitate to reach out. Just a quick disclaimer, the contents of this episode are not meant to replace clinical advice. Pep Talk Podcast, its host and guests do not represent or endorse specific products or procedures mentioned during the episodes unless otherwise stated. Each episode topic has been carefully chosen to fill an educational need. If you have an additional perspective or any information to contribute, or if you need special accommodations to participate in this course, please reach out at info at peptalkpodcastforslps.com. This entire episode is transcribed if you would like to or need to read this episode in text. Hey there, I'm Michelle Andrews, and I'm your host for the Pep Talk Podcast. This episode is about working up the imitation hierarchy to encourage communication in children. My guest speaker today is Deborah Arroyo. Hello. Thanks for having me, Michelle. Hi, I'm so glad you're here. Let me tell everyone a little bit about you. Deborah is a school-based SLP, and she also works at a private practice. She's a certified autism specialist and Hannon certified SLP. In addition to autism, she has a special interest in AAC and is completing her AAC certification. Deborah was a classroom teacher and a credentialed librarian before she became an SLP. She lives in California with her husband and three children. Okay, now we need to go over some formalities for the course by going over our financial disclosures. My financial disclosures include I have a Teachers Pay Teachers, Boom Learning, and Teach with Medley store under Pep Talk LLC. I'm also the founder and manager of the Pep Talk podcast. My non-financial disclosures include Speech Arcade is an in-kind sponsor for this podcast. Deborah's financial disclosures include no financial disclosures, and her non-financial disclosures include she is a Hannon certified SLP. Now here are the learner objectives for this course. List three levels of nonverbal imitation, list four levels of verbal imitation, and describe two approaches for facilitating imitation. Okay, let's get started. Today we're talking all about facilitating imitation skills. You may have had many cases of a child who is not yet speaking or communicating, I know I have. We will we will be walking you through where to start and how to progress through the imitation hierarchy. I am so excited to re- introduce today's guest speaker, Deborah Arroyo. Hi there, Deborah. Hi. Thanks for having me, Michelle. Hi. I'm so glad you're here talking to us about this. Deborah, can you go ahead and tell us? I know I gave your bio, but can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Well, um, I would just say I started working with um, in the schools in 2016, and um, I I had a lot of children um, with autism on my caseload right away, and so that became something that I just developed an interest for um, because these children were my most um, challenging um, challenging students because they weren't talking, and I really didn't have any clue how to where to start with them, and um, I would you know, turn to my mentors and um, some of the advice I got was not that great. And so I realized that I was just going to have to really work on this myself and figure this out for myself. So that's where, you know, my interest started. And um, I've, I've come very far and I'm really excited to share with you the things that I've learned um, 
through trial and error and through professional development and so forth on this topic. Awesome. Yes. I'm so glad you have done a lot of work to learn about all these different approaches and treatment strategies. And I'm so excited to dig into this with you. Um, let's get started with, first of all, why would we work on imitation? Why is this so important to work on? Well, actually, at one point, um, it was actually Im imitation. The role of imitation was in, in speech was actually controversial. So if you think about when we were in uh, undergrad and we were learning language learning theory, um, Chomsky, Skinner, Piaget, uh, there was a lot of uh, controversy back in like the 60s. And I read some papers on it. It was interesting to see the debate and the responses um, from these different um uh, proponents of these theories. Um, but now we understand how foundational the role of imitation, uh, how, how foundational it really is. So it serves as both a learning function and a social function. So to engage in social emotional ex um, exchanges with others, that's the social function. Um, we have nonverbal imitation and we have verbal imitation. Some people might even break up um, nonverbal imitation into fine motor and gross motor imitation. And then there's imitation with objects. Um, for children with developmental speech and language disorder and for autistic children, imitation is something you should be working on if the child isn't yet speaking. Okay, so there's there's that's telling me that there are some gaps in some of these foundational learning skills, imitation being one of them, um, if they're not talking yet. So often parents and caregivers and even SLPs want to go straight to working on speech. You know, the parents will say, I want my child to talk. Um, and sometimes, you know, SLPs will jump right into that, trying to get the child to imitate. They'll use flashcards um, and have them say, try to say words. But, you know, we have to take it a step back. Um, you know, so that we don't have the child become frustrated. That's just going to be too much of a demand on a child who's not yet talking at all spontaneously. Um, we'll have a pretty hard time trying to work on that if, uh, on speech and language skills in general, if the child isn't imitating. Um, so remember, that's the learning function of this. You'll want to do some assessment, of course, so you know where to start. Um, Maybe you'll, and I'll share some resources for that later, but if where the child is imitating just a little bit independently, that's usually where I'd start. Okay, I'll uh, share some assessment resources later, but when you do assessment, you'll want to start where the child can um, do a little bit of, at the level the child can do a little bit of the imitation on their own and then go from there. So whether it's with actions with objects or maybe they're already able to do some gross motor um, imitation, um, you'll have to see where they are and then just make that clinical judgment where to start based on what they're able to give you. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get into talking a little bit about assessments, but let's talk about um, the hierarchy first, so everyone understands kind of where they would fall when they are looking for the assessment. Let's start off with the nonverbal imitation skills. Can you walk us through the three levels of those? Uh, maybe give some examples and activities too? Okay, so the first um, level that you'll want to look at is actions with objects. So is the child able to do both expected and unexpected actions with objects? And you're probably going to use some items that you wouldn't even expect. Um, just today I was working on this with the student, and I brought out some items, and the child gravitated toward these um bubble wrap that the OT had left in our room and started popping the bubble wrap. And then I grabbed a piece and I started popping the bubble wrap too, but I wasn't expecting that, right? So I'm going to give you some ideas, but you're going to, your child, the child that you're working with is really going to, you know, lead the way in terms of what they want to use. And um, you can provide items for them, but um, you'll just take their lead in that for sure. Um, so let's just say actions with objects. So you might have a cup, you might have um, a spoon. You might use that uh, spoon to stir within the cup or a bowl. So you're using these um, functional objects, actually, in that case. Um, you might use blocks. You might put a block in the cup and see if the child can do that, too. Um, that Those are expected things, right, that you're going to be doing with these items. Um, 
Putting things in, taking things out of containers is also something expected. Um, banging a drum, um, pushing a car, and so forth. As you can imagine, you can use imitation to target functional play, but then you also want to do some unexpected things with those items. So, like, instead of just rolling the car, maybe you're going to put the car on your head and then pretend like, you know, or have it fall off your head and pretend like uh, you sneeze and it fell off your head, for example. Um, You'll also want to tackle level two, which is communicative gestures. So this is going to be like gross motor gesture, gross, gross motor um, imitation. So stomping, jumping, uh, doing a little dance, clapping, waving, um, even pointing, blowing kisses. A lot of times people will um, have the child, you know, learn to touch their head or pat their legs. Um, that's all fine too. Um, just remember, conventional gestures uh, won't ever really go away. Um, often, we're going to pair these gestures with language. So, like for example, pointing. Um, if you can get the child to imitate a point, then you know they're going to probably use that going forward for the rest of their life to um, reinforce whatever they're making a choice for. If it's out of reach, for example. So keep in mind, though, that you know. Communicative gestures, so those uh, gross motor gestures are going to be harder for your autistic um, students. They're going to probably be better with the actions with objects than the gross motor imitation or conventional gestures. Um, often you'll see if you're working on that with them prematurely, um, or even if you're they're ready to work on it, you're still going to run into some problems. Like, for example, if you're having them touch their head and you tell them to touch their head, they're probably going to try to touch your head, right? Because they're that awareness of themselves. Um, being able to see themselves is is going to be really hard for them. So you're probably going to have to use some hand over hand over hand prompting to get them to you know touch their own head because when you're doing it, they're going to want to touch yours. Okay, that's what I that's what I found. Interesting, yeah. Um, so yeah, so you want to work on those con conventional gestures at that level too. Again, like pointing uh, because those are things and waving. Those are things that that they're going to you know be doing for the rest of their life. So if you're working on communicative gestures and um, gross motor Im imitation, um, you're going to have to probably use some physical prompting, like I mentioned, and then go ahead and fade that prompt. Uh, level three uh, is going to be a nonverbal imitation, including finger play. So like the itsy bitsy spider, um, or you might even start at this point to try to introduce some simple signs like the sign for ball um, or the sign for milk. Just depends on the child's age and what they're really motivated by. You want to definitely start to incorporate some of those um, functional signs for them. Awesome. Okay. So just to recap, the, you gave us so many examples. So we have uh, number one, actions with objects that can be expected and the unexpected. Number two, imitating gestures like gross motor, stomping, waving, clapping. Uh, and, um, and number three, nonverbal, um, more fine motor stuff like with signs in their hands. And um, what about even different um, imitations with their mouth and their face? Is that in that category too? Yes. Yes. So that's the third level. Um, so you're going to want to start to bring awareness to your face and your mouth and getting them to imitate um, those fine motor movements with your face, um, such as smacking their lips. I'll even have some of my students like try to lick around their lips with their tongue. Um, and it you can make it really silly and fun when you're doing this because, you know, and it you might just change it up. You might just start blowing raspberries or pouting or smiling and being really silly with them to keep it, to keep their engagement, to keep them looking at you. Um, you want to draw attention to your face and your mouth when doing this um, because that's going to lead into verbal imitation. Um, remember, speech is a fine motor act. So we want to work on a fine motor imitation with the face and the mouth. Okay, so we're going to do that before we get into verbal imitation. Right. And I, I like how before when you're talking about the unexpected on, uh, let's see, that would be level one, um, just making it silly, like putting the car on your head, even with my own kids, some of the first jokes or fun things that they laughed at were 
things that were unexpected like that, like putting something where it doesn't belong, you know, a sock on your hand or, you know, the car on your head, like you said, um, and yeah. just something that'll kind of get their attention and, and yeah, to get them to kind of imitate something that's not, oh, well, I always, you know, putting a cup to my mouth is pretty normal, but putting a cup on my foot or my elbow that, you know, that's, I'm actually truly yeah. imitating something mm-hmm. novel, right. And not just something that's kind of just the expected. So today I was working on um, having a child blow kisses and, you know, he could put his hand up to his mouth. He could do that part, but then he couldn't, you know, he couldn't actually make, make the kissing sound. So just getting him to put his hand up to his mouth after I did was where we started with that. So you're just going to have to use your judgment and build on whatever the child's able to do. Right. Yeah. And just, be encouraging whenever they even make any attempt. Like, yeah, putting his hand to his mouth, that was possibly a huge, a huge step for him possibly, you know? So that's awesome. Right. Yep. All, right. All right. So then um, we went through the nonverbal levels. So now we're starting to get into verbal. So where do we start there? Depending on what you find with your assessment, you're going to want to start here if the child can make some purposeful vocalizations, like purposefully laughing, um, and not just reflexive crying, but actual like whining, um, then you know the child, you know, has that control over their vocalizations at that point. So you can start with environmental sounds. Um, As SLPs, we often start with animal sounds. That's also really great. Um, And vocal plays such as like fake sneezing, making the sound, bringing your fingers to your lips, um, growling, fake yawning. Those are all um, really fun vocal play ideas that you could start with. Then you'll want to include some exclamatory words as well. Um, That would be like the second level into um, verbal imitation. You want to start with some exclamatory words such as yay or oh no or "Uh uh-oh, wee. And oftentimes you're going to elicit these in while the child is jumping on the trampoline or if you're swinging the child or if you're picking them up. you're going to just model and and try to get them to um, imitate some of those words. And if you'll notice, um, oh, and I also like to use uh, Jenny Bjorum's, um, she has books, Oh No Poo Poo, Oh No Pee Pee, and I target exclamatory <laughs> words through that book all the time, and the kids really love it. Um, you'll notice that all of these have early syllable shapes. So so the hope is that these would be easier for the child to imitate because the syllable shapes are easier. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Next, you'll want to include some verbal routines um, such as ready, set, go. I often do this with like a helicopter toy that I have. Um, The child can come in with their part. So you're building that um, social interaction. They're taking a part and you're taking a part, and then there's the reward is getting to see the toy go or the balloon go, whatever it might be. So ready, set, go, or one, two, three, blast off. Um, or you can just use um, old McDonald's, some songs. I also like to use some simple um little poems like the snowball the snowball song the uh, sorry the snowman poem um the snowball song these are just really short little songs that the child can come in with um i've also used um the five little monkeys lakeshore has this really cute board with the velcro pieces and that's what i use um to make it even more fun, the child can pull off the piece while saying their part. So those are just some ideas that you can use to, to do some of those fill-ins. Um, you also want to target functional words. Um, that's going to be, well, the last one that we just went over was uh, the automatic speech, the fill-ins. That's going to be the next level after exclamatory words. But you're going to want to get into some functional words as well. And if you were teaching some functional signs back you know, at that other level, uh, level two, uh, such as ball, then here you're going to start to try to pair those words and have the child actually try to say the word with the the sign, okay? So they might already be trying to, but if not, you're going to really want to expect that from them at this point. Um, You'll want to target those functional words. Some people call them power words or fringe words. 
basically these are really important words to the child, okay? Um, you can build these imitation skills when teaching them to request those items that they really like, or if it's a person, mom, that's also um, going to be a power word for them. If the child really likes Cheetos and imitates some approximation of it, then you can use successive approximations or shaping to get them to make a better production of the word. And this is getting into, if you've heard of Nancy Kaufman, that's the approach she uses. So she starts with early syllable shapes. She takes the, the word and she breaks it down to into, into a simpler word shell or word shape. And then she builds it up for the child as they can imitate more and more and you expect more from them. Um, the child's more likely to imitate you in that case because, of course, their efforts, um, they're, for their efforts, they're going to be rewarded with the item that they want most. Okay, so then we're getting into, like, requesting. They're requesting it by its name. And you can kind of see how this all fits into what we do every day in getting a child to be able to functionally request things. Um, if you're really interested in the sciency approach to this, you can look up echoic training or echoic teaching to find some behavioral approach approaches to teaching vocal imitation. There's one called stimulus-stimulus pairing or vocal imitation training. These approaches have their own protocols. Um, you know, if you really like to have something that tells you what to do step-by-step step with the child, then that might be of interest to you um, as well. Very cool. Okay, so just to recap on those levels of verbal imitation, we have the environmental sounds, um, animal sounds, raspberries, sneezing, things like that. Then we have um, the exclamatory words, yuck, uh-oh, boo-boo, things like that. Um, we have the next one is the fill-ins, ready, set, go. Um, another thing there that I was thinking of, you kind of touched when you said um, the five little monkeys, but I was thinking another good activity could be all those really repetitive books, like more examples would be brown bear, brown bear. Um, what's another one? There's so many of those those books that just repeat and the kids get used to it and then they want to say the word. And then the next one, the functional or power words. Yeah, I use those books. I use books all the time to teach those more um, automatic um, verbal routines. Yeah, those are definitely a lot of my my own children's first words. We're just like repeating some of the words in books that we said over and over again that they wanted to read a hundred times, which is so great as we know, but yes. <laughs> it's fun to see. Okay. Um, okay. So you touched on one of the approaches and I know you and I have talked about two approaches that you often use um, in imitation therapy. Can you tell us what those are? Yeah. So like I was mentioning those approaches that you can look into when really working on verbal imitation. But going back to nonverbal imitation, um, again, you can make it a really structured approach or you can make it more of a loose approach, a more naturalistic approach. Um, so there's discrete trial training, which can be used to teach both teach both nonverbal and verbal imitation. And then there's also a naturalistic behavioral approach called reciprocal imitation training. And there's videos on YouTube you can watch if you want to see it in action. Um, it's taught in an interactive context. So you'll put items out and the important thing is to have two of every item, at least if, if you're not using the same exact items, um, two of the same, the, exactly the same items, you're going to want to have um, similar items. Okay, so if you have like a wind-up toy of a dinosaur, maybe you'll have a wind-up toy of a little bear, you know, it, but both are wind-up toys. Um, if you you're going to put those items out and then you're going to let the you're going to let the child choose what they want to play with and then once you see them playing with an item you're going to take the other item that's there that was meant for you and you're going to imitate them what they're doing with it and then see if they will imitate you and you'll offer verbal praise and get really excited if they imitate you. But initially, you're going to be doing more of the imitating yourself, just getting them to pay attention to you, getting them to look at you. Um, and they will stare at you because they're wondering like, oh, what are you doing? Why are you doing what I'm doing? And you'll see it in their face and they'll kind of give you a little sidelong glance. Like they'll think you're a little weird probably because you're doing what they're doing. But that's what you want. You want to want to get them looking at you. Um, so that's reciprocal imitation training. Um, 
And then with discrete trial training, that's going to be a more structured approach. Both approaches, though, you should be facing the child. The child needs to be able to see you so they can attend to you. Um, you're going to, with discrete trial training, though, you're usually going to say, like, do this and then show them what you want them to do. Um, and then have the child imitate you for any number of trials that they can handle, they can tolerate. Um, you'll probably need to use some physical prompting in that case because that's that's going to be a more structured approach. Whereas with natural uh, naturalistic approach, you're not going to worry if they imitate you or not. In discrete trial training, you're going to want to prompt and then fade that prompt. You're going to want to make sure they're doing what you're asking them to do with that cue of do this. Um, so you'll offer some kind of reinforcer um, at, after a certain number of trials that you're doing with them, whatever's motivating to the child. Um, that could be verbal praise. It could be an item. It really just depends on the child. Um, I even once used something called rapid motor imitation antecedent training. And there's a whole book manual on it. I think it's from Brooks Publishing um, that you can use. And it uses behavioral momentum. So if you have a child who's really good at fine and gross motor, you have them do like a rapid succession of some gross motor imitation. Like do this, pat their legs, do this, tap their head, do this, clap their hands. And then you have them say the name of the item that you know they want ball and then hopefully they'll say ball because they have that momentum going from all the motor imitation. Hopefully you'll get the fine motor imitation, which is the verbal imitation you're looking for. Um, so it's not as you have to have the, it's not for every child. You have to have a child who can uh, tolerate waiting for a toy that they really like. Um, you have to have a child who can sit for like three minutes and who can look at you, who has that joint attention. I wouldn't try this with a really developmentally young child who gets really mad easily. If you make them wait for something, that's just going to go bad. Um, but that's something to think about too. Um, I think you have to have both the trial training for the skill development and then also the naturalistic approach for the generalization of it because um, at least the population of children I work with, um, autistic children, they tend to not generalize things really well. So um, doing just discrete trial training would, would not be you know, the best thing for them. But also the naturalistic approaches don't offer enough of the opportunities that they need in order for the skill to develop. So I do both. Okay. I do both if the child can handle the more structured approach. If the naturalistic approach, like reciprocal imitation training is going to be um, more play-based, right? And child-led. And there's really good evidence for it as well. So definitely um, try that. Um, you're going to want to, like I mentioned before, you want to be face-to-face -face with the child when working on imitation. You really need the child to be able to pay attention to you um, or you're just, you're going to waste your time if they're not looking at you and, and interested in you. The article that I shared with you, um, which connected us in the first place, uh, when Simon says, is it enough? It does talk about imitating as the, imitating the child as a way to actually elicit imitation itself and Again, that's something that I learned with Hannon, and that's something that I mentioned here. Like when you're um, doing reciprocal imitation training, that's the that's that approach uses that strategy as well. Um, and then we can't forget AAC and having a functional communication system in place for the child because there are going to be kids that won't develop speech until later or maybe never. And we need to make sure that they have a functional communication system in place for them. And that article actually talks about um, having the AAC device with voice output. Um, it, it could actually get the child to imitate as well what they're hearing when they select a button on there. I have a student that I'm working with just this year. He started imitating um, vocally and he really pays attention to your mouth um, and he really tries to get the oral posture. Um, so again, he's 10. So that's something now that we've, we've been, he's been with using an AAC device, but now we can really start to get that out of him. The imitation is there now. So never give up on working on that imitation, the verbal imitation.
That's awesome. I love hearing that. The other thing I might add is, you know, once you really get that imitation going and the child does start to use vocalizations, vocalizations and verbalizations, then you can start to really look and assess for apraxia of speech because, you know, we can't make that most of the time we're saying suspected apraxia of speech because the child can't do any imitative um, tasks um, when it comes to speech. So once they get there, then you'll really start to see if they're looking at your mouth, if they're groping, and then you can do like a formal assessment for that. So that's why it's so important to really work on this so that you can uh, make differential diagnosis later. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And especially when we're, when you were mentioning the different, um, the different approaches and how you even kind of use a combo of the two or, you know, it just really depends on the child. And I, yeah, that's when we really just use our clinical judgment, right? So, you know, the kid, you know, these different approaches and, you know, you can kind of see, okay, this kid, you know, he's going to be totally cool with having that little extra push, having that little encouragement to do this, but this kid, he, he's not going to tolerate it and it's going to go bad. Or <laughs> it's going to, it's going to, the session's going to, not be fun for him and he's not going to be wanting to interact. So yeah, just having that clinical judgment and just that rapport with your client and knowing them at least or getting to know them well enough to kind of know when to do each, each type of approach. Exactly. Yeah. And having those, having those, um, these strategies and these approaches in your clinical toolbox, it's going to make all the difference for your children, your students, because all of them are so unique. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So we went through all the levels. So we, I think that that gives us a good idea now to then go into talking about the informal assessments. Um, do you, what are some that you use and then talk to us a little bit about what an, an example and like how you would assess? Okay. So I have, um, a couple of books and, one of them I have here, one's at my office, but um, Laura Mize, she has a really great book. It's called Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers. Um, and she has this hierarchy spelled out in there and activities you can do. She really breaks it down so well for us therapists. So I definitely recommend her book, Building Im Verbal Imitation in Toddlers. Um, you could use her hierarchy to do both assessment and intervention. Um, Carrie Ebert has an informal assessment and intervention guide in her Learning to Learn program. I also really like her book. Um, she goes over the research and the approaches as well. Um, so I would recommend that you get that one as well. Another assessment that I've used to look at motor imitation is the VB map. Um, it's, it's a it's a milestone assessment or criterion reference assessment. Um, it has both a motor imitation assessment in it and it has the early echoics assessment um, that you can use if the child is able to do some verbal imitation. It, it breaks it down by syllable shapes and then you can see where the child's really at and then you can choose really important words for the child based on the syllable sh shapes that they have most success with. So I like that one a lot. Um, there's another one called the Motor Imitation Scale. You could just, I'll put a link in the resources, but you could just Google that and a lot of um, like researchers, when they're doing their research studies, they create these assessments and then they provide them for free. So that one's um, based on research, a research study. And then um, there's the motor and vocal imitation assessment, the MVIA. That one is also from a study and it's on Teachers Pay Teachers for $99. So that's a good one to use as well. Um, but you could just even just you know, try different things, um, objects, and just get an array of objects and, and, you know, do your own formal assessment as well. And so you have that to speak on, you know, for the, the meeting, the IEP meeting you might have, or the assessment you might have that you're going to submit to insurances. Right. So the kind of overall gist of it would be figuring out which level they're currently at, and then building from there, basically. Yes, and, it, and definitely if they're not speaking, you're going to want to look at that nonverbal imitation, um, including um, imitation with objects, actions with objects. Okay. Have you ever gotten into a case where just the, the child 
really wouldn't imitate, they, not even level one, like they just wouldn't do anything, interact with you at all. What do you do in that situation? Yeah, I actually had that today. <laughs> I have a child who's not who's not talking and it's a challenge. Like I said, you're going to run into some issues, like one being that they're going to try to imitate on your body uh, when you're trying to get them to imitate on yours. Um, but today I have a child, I had a child and he's working on imitation with objects. I, I'm using reciprocal imitation training with him because he's definitely needs to be in a more child-led approach. Um, I've tried using some child training with him and he can't tolerate it. So I've, I've definitely taken that naturalistic approach with him. So I put out the items before he came in the room and he did gravitate to a couple of the items. Like I had, I had two pom-poms and he really liked those, but he started pulling out the, the threads on the pom-pom. So I put that away. I didn't want him to be destructive, right? You don't want to imitate them doing anything destructive or dangerous. So I just hid it in a box quickly because I didn't want, I figured that's not, you know, going to be good for him to use. Um, and then he's the one that got the bubble wrap and we started popping uh, the bubbles on the bubble wrap. Um, and then there were, there were a couple of items I put out, these gears. Um, he really liked them, but, and mine were slightly different. Um, and he took, he wanted mine as well. So then we got into this issue where he, I was trying to imitate what he was doing with his two gears, but then he wanted mine and he did, he got really upset because I wouldn't give him mine. So again, once he started showing an interest in another toy and he was distracted with another toy, I just put that one away, um, because I didn't want him to, I didn't want it to be like an aversive experience, um, with him, but he, there's there's different things that you're going to try and you're going to have to just say, okay, that one didn't work and then try a different one. Um, but again, he's at the level where I'm doing more of the imitating him and just getting him to pay attention to me. And I want to get a smile out of him. I want to get, you know, some enjoyment. I want him to enjoy the interaction. And sometimes that's where you're going to be just trying to get in uh, a joint attention, just trying to get the child to pay attention to you, to want them to let you into their play, whatever that play might be at this point, um, before you start putting even demands on them to imitate you, imitate an action with an object. So you're definitely going to get that. And I'll share some tips, um, tips with you um, on some other things you can do to try to help that. You will get some students who don't want, they're not ready to share their toys with you and tolerate, they can't even tolerate a brief turn with an item. So then you're going to run into that issue and you're going to have to make sure that the items are, are even more different so that they don't want yours while you're trying to work on this um, imitation with um, items. Oh, I see. Yeah. And it, it, it seems like it really is going to be that trial and error. Like, okay, this one didn't work, you know, just move on to the next thing. And like you said a few minutes ago, like not giving up and just keep being that excitement, that fun person in, in the therapy session and hope that they eventually come around and you get that smile. Um, I know sometimes I, especially if a parent is either in there or they're outside waiting for, you know, the report of how it went, we, we can get so anxious to just get that progress and, and move on to the next step. But I, I really do think kind of like what you implied is that building that relationship and the rapport with the child is so important for, for getting them to yeah let you in on their play and being willing to imitate and play with you. Um, so spending a little extra time building that relationship, I think is really important. I've seen that in my own practice for sure. Yeah. And, and sometimes they will, um, not want to share the toys and the items because so many people have taken things from them. And so they do become a little protective of their toys or the toys they want to play with. So again, I'm not just taking the item from the child. If it's not working out, I'm waiting for them to get distracted by another toy that they like and let put that one down, then I just quickly hide it if it's not working out for the purpose of, you know, our goal that we're working on right at that moment. But um, yeah, sometimes it's our fault that the child is, is hoarding the toy or keeping the toy from us because, you know, they've had a lot of experiences where people have taken things from them. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Whenever you have 
a child that you're working on, you know, maybe they're making great progress with this, or maybe, you know, they're like we just mentioned, and you're kind of trial and error, you're, you're still trying and trying and trying, and you have the parents there. What what advice do you have, I guess, first for therapists um, about just, I know I get, I'm just like sweating, thinking the parent just thinks I'm just so silly, just on my hands and knees, imitating this child or whatever it is that we're doing. What advice would you give to therapists too on how to communicate to parents kind of what you're doing? So if you know the rationale for what you're doing, right, that's, I, I do this all the time in private practice. I'll call parents and I'll explain to them um, why I'm doing what I'm doing and what I'm going to try. And I'll tell them this might not work, but if it doesn't, then this is what I'm going to try. So sometimes it's a matter of just communicating to parents a simplified rationale. You don't need to get into the research with them, but you're going to give them that rationale. And sometimes that's all it takes for them to get on board with what you're doing. And then trying to see what they can do at home um, to to support what you're working on as well. Um, and so for therapists, that's just going to, that's how we have to learn how to communicate with parents. We have to be able to explain what we're doing, why we're doing it. And that usually handles and takes care of um, any problems and, and being okay with admitting, like you said, when you have to do the consult at the end and the parent, you're telling them how it went and being honest with them and just saying it didn't work and I'm going to try this again. And, and I want to make sure that we're making it really fun and enjoyable. And I'm going to include this, this item next time to see if that works. Um, that's what I would recommend for therapists. Um, I love that. That's great advice. And I know that, you know, especially new SLPs, I think it can be intimidating to, um, to fail or not to fail, but to, to try something and it not work out. And then to have to tell the parents, okay, now we're going to try this, or maybe we're going to try this for a while until it works <laughs> until, cause I believe it, I'm going to believe in your child and we're going to, we're going to find what works. Um, but yeah, I love how you worded that. That was really great. So, okay. My next question then is, um, what are some tips that you would give to parents? So we obviously want the child to have this kind of uh, therapy or this, this, these kind of tools, not just for 45 minutes once a week, right? So what are some tips we'd give to parents to help with this carryover to help practice at home? Like I mentioned at the beginning, I'm a Hannon certified SLP. I'm, I'm certified in more than words and talkability. And in the more than words program, both are parent coaching models, but in the more than words um, program, we teach uh, parents to help their child develop a functional play routine. Um, so we tell them to have two of the items that their child likes. So if your child likes to line up cars or line up eggs or to play with dinosaurs, have your own set or your own single item um, of that. And then if your child doesn't want to share the items with you, like I mentioned, that that will happen um, or takes your items because they look similar to theirs, then you really need to change up one or two elements um, of the item. Like I said before, if it's a wind-up toy, maybe it's not going to be the exact dinosaur wind-up toy that they like. Maybe it's going to be a bear or maybe it's going to be a different color dinosaur. Um, so you have to change it up enough to where they don't want yours. Um, but we teach parents to rock and it's, it's an acronym. So the R stands for repeat or imitate your child. Like we've been talking about, that's a really great strategy to build imitation. Um, and then the O stands for provide an opportunity for your child to imitate you, right? So you're going to then, if you get this momentum going where you're um, imitating the child and they're looking at you, then you might change it up in that moment that they're looking at you and see if they'll actually do what you're doing. Okay, so you're providing that opportunity. And then you're going to cue your child by using expectant wait, even up to 10 seconds, and then the K stands for keep the play fun and animate, animated um, as long as it's not dangerous or destructive, imitating your child works because there's already motivation built into the interaction. Um, you can share focus easier on the item that you're teaching them to imitate with. Um, it gives your, your child power. Um, they see they have control over you and they'll look at you and they'll think it's really funny because um, you're copying them. And then they'll be encouraged to try new actions um, to get you to copy them again. Okay, so that develops that back and forth interaction, that reciprocity. 
So that's what we teach parents to do at home. And you might have to ask them, you know, um, there's going to be a preference assessment that you're going to do with, with your child. Or maybe the SLP's done a preference assessment and can share with them, hey, your child really likes pom-poms. Have a set of pom-poms at home. See if you can get the child to wave it above their head and, or wave it, you know, pat it on their legs and or do peekaboo with the pom-poms. See if... Um, see if you can share ideas with them because sometimes they don't even know what their child is motivated for. They'll tell you, my child doesn't like anything. So you're going to probably have to do some probing to see what the child actually really likes and that you could use. That's great advice. I like the acronym too. That's easy to remember. And you know, you could rock. Yeah. You can make a little (laughs) handout for the parents or something. That's, That's awesome. I have a couple of students, and I, I mentioned one of them earlier, the one that I was working with today. Um, I have another student. Um, we've introduced AAC to this student, and he's able to make some selections for some items that he really likes. Um, but I moved from using more child-led to doing some discreet um, trial training with him today, and he was a rock star. It was probably like the second trial I had to, you know, imitate model for him, do this. And we were working on some gross motor imitation. And then I had to help him do it on his own body. But by the third or fourth trial, um, he was doing it on his own. And as long as they're happy, they're looking at, they're smiling, they're not showing that they're uninterested, then keep with it, keep going. Um, But that was my first time you know, working on trial training with him after working months. I mean, he's almost to the end of his IEP now. So working months on him, with him on um, imitating actions with objects. So I I just changed it up by incorporating more structure to that, um, to that skill we're working on. So just different, different, um, I have so many different students and there's a lot of trial and error, really. Yeah, I I love that. And it it's so exciting to me the kids that I've worked with that weren't talking at all. You know, they come in, the parents are just at a loss and there's no communication really. And to go from just nothing to even, you know, someone might think, "Oh, patting your head isn't a big step, but it's huge." You know, that when they're actually imitating you or they do something for the first time that's communicative, like it's just I've just seen parents just cry, you know, and it's not even a word yet or something, but they're really interacting or they're, you know, even interacting with mom more and they're, they just have that more back and forth than ever before. It really is huge. And it's, it's life-changing for that family. And I don't know, this, this is a really, really awesome area to really focus on. Um, I know that that you see a lot of kiddos in your practice, I know, um, that are on these levels and it's just amazing to really truly really get in there and, and change their lives. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, like you're saying, um, sometimes we're not jumping right into working on language skills or even talking. We're trying to get them to just be noisy, babble, make any kind of vocalizations and do it frequently because we know that's going to eventually lead to um, speech and talking and using real words. And Sometimes we're just trying to get them to use gestures um, and make an initiate, right? Initiate using gestures. That's where they are developmentally. And I think we just have to realize, like, sometimes we're trying to push them too far, too fast. And we have to just really meet them where they are, presume um, presume potential with them, and make sure that we're providing the, the right opportunities for them and the right interventions and strategies to, to get them where we do eventually want to get them. Right. I love that presume potential, too. I know we've always we've heard presume competence or presume other things, but presume that potential, like don't ever, don't ever think like, oh, you know, this is where they're always going to be. I've had so many kids that I would work on something and work on something and work on something. And it was only when I almost, I didn't yet, but almost only when I would almost start to think maybe I should should just stop and work on something else, he would get it. And so it's just, you know, you got to just keep going and, and just, yeah, presume that they're going to make progress and, and don't give up. I love that. Yeah, because when when we say presume competence, we're assuming they already know 
what it is we're trying to have them do. Where uh, and and then when we say presume confident or presume potential, that means we're we're actually doing the work to help them get there. We're actually making sure that we're putting the right interventions in place to get them there. I love that. Okay, so what is one last closing statement or pep talk you can leave our listeners with? So for SLPs, there's I want I want to emphasize that there's a difference between social communication intervention and language intervention. So often in grad school, they don't teach us much of the social communication intervention, um, which includes joint attention, play, imitation. Um, but they do teach us all the language, linguistic stuff, linguistic stuff that focuses on vocabulary, morpho- morphology, syntax, increasing MLU. But then when we get into clinical practice and we realize something's missing, because for me, it was the social communication aspect because of the children I started working with. Um, so I realized there was something missing. Like I can't start, you know, working on getting the child to talk. What, where do I need to actually begin? And so it took a lot of um, me doing everything I could do to uh, really focus on these important foundational skills, keep asking questions and keep learning um, and practicing when you do come upon um, some evidence-based or strategies and hopefully you'll see the difference it'll make in your child or your clients or your students development um, because that was the missing piece for me really looking at these things you know joint attention imitation and play that's so encouraging this this whole episode has been great it's been so informative and I just think this will be great for SLPs to either get a refresher on this or hear it for the first time and use it in therapy and and know to the hierarchy of, okay, my student is doing this and then this is what I can work on next. I think that's really helpful. Thank you for listening. We hope you learned something today. All of the references and resources throughout the episode are listed in the show notes and also listed on the Pep Talk podcast for SLP's website. If you want to learn more about Deborah, make sure to check out her Instagram at orangeblossomslp where she shares more helpful information and resources. Deborah, thank you again for joining me here today. Thanks for having me, Michelle. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode on the Pep Talk Podcast. Remember, you can use this podcast episode for a professional development hour to maintain your ASHA CCCs. You must earn your certificate of completion in order to get credit. This podcast course is also TISHA certified. I live in Texas, so that stands for the Texas Speech and Hearing Association. All the references and information mentioned in today's episode are listed in the show notes. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, or simply want to chat, please email me or find me on Instagram, Facebook, or go to peptalkpodcastforslps.com. Thank you for joining in and for continuing your education with me.